no no pen tapping, please. Thanks. Nope. No pen clicking. <laughs> you guys are like the Laurel and Hardy of yeah. podcasts. <laughs> okay. Uh, welcome to the Learning Conversation. This is a podcast. It is a podcast, yes. And it is a podcast brought to you by Nomadic Learning. And I'm Matt Burr, the CEO and co-founder of Nomadic Learning. And as usual, I'm joined by Tim. Hey, Matt. You're, you're supposed to introduce yourself, buddy. All the listeners know me already, but uh, <laughs> this is uh, Tim Sarche. I'm the COO of Nomadic Learning. Um, and we have a special guest today. We do have a special guest. Before I get to that, I'm supposed to say, if you're interested in learning more about Nomadic Learning, you can check us out at nomadiclearning.com. You can find our blog there. And you can also check us out on Twitter, at Nomadic Learn. And on LinkedIn, however you find things on LinkedIn, probably just by typing nomadic learning into the search bar. Um, so yeah, we, we I think Tim, so last week, okay, so the first two episodes, it was just us. Last week we had kind of a special guest. We had we featured an excerpt from an interview with Josh Burson, but it was not live today. After, and I think we hinted at this, so we had a very special guest. We actually do have a live human guest who has come to speak to us on the podcast, and it is a very special guest indeed. So without further ado, we will introduce Lori Rebholtz. Now, Lori, I, you recently have a new job title, so I'm not, I'm not actually sure I know what your job title is. So could you tell us you know, a little bit about yourself and where you work and what you do. It's Monday morning. I'm not sure if I know my own job title. <laughs> this is Lori Repholz and I work for City. <laughs> um, I've been at City almost 17 years. I'm approaching a very lengthy anniversary coming up next week. And I am now the new design lead for the team that we call Leadership and Performance Solutions. So my team is responsible for doing all of the learning design for global curricula around certain topics important to leadership, like innovation, digital acumen, manager capability, um, professional skills, collaboration, and the like. Awesome. How's that going? How's the new job going? You know, some days it feels like drinking from a fire hose, and other days I feel like I haven't yet let go of a lot of other stuff. So it's it's a slow and fast transition at the same time, if you can imagine that. Totally. So, so thanks, Lori. And we're so very grateful and excited for you to, to join us. Um, we have known Lori, I think I've we've known each other for a few years and worked on a couple of projects together that we're going to talk about. And um, just, you know, my own editorial opinion, Lori is just one of the most creative and interesting people we've run into in our many, many years in this space so we're very excited to have you have you on with us well the feeling is mutual oh thank you <laughs> um so the basic the basic theme today that we're going to talk about and laurie is uniquely positioned to talk about this is we're going to talk about how hr and more specifically l d folks um can help sort of takes take their own medicine who who's doing what to help learning and development professionals learn uh as professionals and um what does that mean to, to do development for ourselves? It's a it's a strange, it's a very meta topic. And I think, Lori, for the last few years when we've done these programs together, that's always like, yeah, it's learning for learning about learning. And it gets very confusing, <laughs> but hopefully we'll try and keep, keep it all straight. Um, but before we, I think we have some like big questions that we're going to kind of ask you about and, and think about, Lori. But before we do that, I thought you might just describe to us some of the work you've done inside City uh, with your own L&D folks. And now I think you're kind of reaching out to the broader HR community as well. Um, just give us a sense of some of the, the professional development work you guys have, have been putting out there for your own L&D team and where that came from, what's driving that and how it's going. So Matt, I would say, you know, a few years ago, it was kind of the perfect storm. We had um, a chief learning officer at the time that was thinking about our go forward strategy. We had a business partnership that they were getting smarter and smarter about kind of how they wanted to learn. And so collectively, the learning organization at City was really thinking about what does the future look like for us? How, what are the demands of our stakeholders in the business, our employees, our learners? Um, 
you know, how are we going to deliver learning differently in a way that engaged people the way it hadn't before? And how do we capture their time in a really busy environment? And so we started thinking about, you know, kind of if anybody knows Charles Jennings, the 70-20-10 rule of learning, which is not new, right? So it's 70% experience, um, 20% exposure and 10% through education. And yet a lot of learning organizations are kind of flipped in terms of where the weight is far more on the education side than it is on experience or exposure. So as we started thinking about how do we bring that more to life at City and drive a bigger learning culture where people are kind of the drivers of their own learning journey, part of the challenge is many of us have been in the learning industry for a really long time and our bread and butter has been and what we love to do is facilitation. We do a lot of design of programs where you can see the light bulbs going off for people. You can engage with people, whether it's through instructor-led or virtual instructor-led. You kind of get immediate feedback, whether you're the design team or the facilitation team, and you have high touch for the people that are participating. And so I think to make the shift we really started struggling thinking about not only how do we get our employees to think differently about how they consume learning, but how do you get people that have been in the profession a long time to kind of break out of the traditional molds and break out of the way that we've always done things and start thinking differently? Yeah, so how do you do that? <laughs> oh, well, you know, that's the question of the hour. I think, you know, we still struggle with it, but I think one of the, one of the ways that we're really approaching this is investing in our own organization and giving people... Um, samples of what we hope to bring to life for the organization. So, you know, I had somebody at one point asked me that really was pivotal for me in my career as a learning professional. Somebody had asked me, hey, when you learn at home, how do you go about it? If you need to do something differently or learn something new at home, what do you do? And I thought, well, that's kind of a silly question. I would Google it, like who wouldn't do that? And I would find a video that in five minutes or less would help me figure out what I need to do. And that same very smart person said, well, then why do you think employees want to learn in any different way? If that's how people are choosing to consume learning at home in their professional lives, why are people not able to do that at work? And that really, for me, was pivotal to think very differently about what a great question and how powerful that is. And so we started asking our own internal learning team that same question. And to do that, we really wanted to make sure that the messaging was getting out globally. We're a very large organization, so we have 210,000 plus employees worldwide. We have, you know, a thousand employees in city learning that are that are located around the world. And so while we have a hub in certain cities and we have executives from city learning predominantly sitting in New York, the messages while they get out and and they're spoken, if you sit in a site outside of New York you're hearing more from the people that are asking you for learning than the people that are driving learning. And so how do we kind of bridge that gap to build a conversation globally within our own learning team so that instead of people hearing from our chief learning officer or from some of our senior executives that we must change the way we deliver learning because of the future of the world and digitization and everything else that goes on in this universe, how do we get them talking to each other so that they can start influencing and changing each other's minds? And so that was kind of how we embarked on working with you guys in thinking about how do we bring social learning to life and give people a really great example of what great experiential, conversational, partnership-oriented learning looks like compared to what we were used to. And, and there was born what we call the Learning Transformation Challenge. Right, and I remember, I mean, one of the things that was quite I don't know if it was daunting about this in the beginning was people, I'm not sure, I think you never said this. I mean, but I heard other people say this to us where we are like, oh, you guys are doing learning for learning people. That's rough. They're really hard. <laughs> you know, this is a really tough audience. They really don't like this kind of stuff. And I remember a few times in the beginning, you and I were kind of like, yeah, no, I agree. They are going to be, this is going to be tricky. And I think there was some question of like, are we biting off more than we can chew? But Actually, the I mean, it really was it turned out to be the opposite. There was a huge hunger. It felt like amongst that the, the city learning for these. I mean, I think some a lot of it was around content and the, the, some of that, but a lot of the huge driver, I think, was connecting across city with other folks and, and the kind of conversations that that sparked and came out of the, the transformation challenge. I don't know. I mean, you get a lot more feedback than, than we do, but it felt like that that human connection element was as important, if not even more important than some of the kind of more 
instructional pedagogical content like elements of it yeah i mean it's amazing for anybody who's who's done learning for learning colleagues um especially if you're doing stand-up facilitation it is hard they are they're the worst critics and they should be because they know what's great and they know what's not and so to stand up in front of a group of learning professionals is never the easiest thing on earth so as we were thinking not only about standing up content for learning professionals, we were doing it and delivering it in a way that we've never done before. And it was, I think initially when you hear that it's on a social learning platform delivered through technology, your first assumption is, oh, that's way lower touch than what I'm used to or what I love. And so I think, you know, we, through your model, really brought together kind of a design team of learning colleagues around the world to make sure that what we were designing was on target and would engage people in the way that we had hoped. And so that was kind of stage one and, and challenge one is once we select the people to come together as a small design committee of global learning professionals, you know, I work with amazing people. So we picked a small gathering of learning professionals, um, you know, that really are connected in within the different regions in which we operate, within the different businesses that we support to make sure that we had representation because we were looking at a program that would span all of our learning providers. So it wasn't just about helping our faculty or facilitators. It wasn't just about helping our designers. It was about helping everybody from whether you operate in an administrative capacity or you're in front of the stakeholders delivering this instructor-led program on a regular basis. We wanted to make sure that this was relevant for everybody. So our first step was bringing together the right group of people to represent their colleagues. And I have to say, right out of the gate, they were so impressive and so highly engaged, partly I think because the process that Nomadic followed with us was really high quality and I think the content was spot on and you did a lot of great listening. So I think people felt heard, but it was just the fact that we were doing something for ourselves that I think excited this small group so much they've never seen it before that it really built a lot of momentum and I thought it sparked some amazing high quality feedback. But surprisingly, I don't think we were as challenged as we thought we would be, which I'm not complaining, but was pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, I, I think they, yeah, we were definitely challenged in the right ways to make it more global, to make it more relevant for city audiences. But yeah, I think there was just a general kind of enthusiasm and just this sense of like, wow, we're really, we're doing something. And I think, yeah, Cam Cameron, who's the CLO of City, his leadership around that was really important too, because he kind of put a stake in the ground right from the beginning and said, you know, I'm really serious about this. This is this is important for all of us. And that I think helped help drive this. Yeah, the whole leadership team was highly engaged. I mean, they they really, really were key, key drivers and sponsors of the work, which was very helpful. So, uh, so Tim, I want to bring you in. So do you, do you, do you want to I know that from the kind of design and rollout of this particular one, maybe a little on the outside, is there anything that you wanted to talk about around the transformation challenge before we kind of dive into some of these bigger, bigger questions that we want to ask, ask Lori uh, about? Yeah, I just had a question. I, this, I think this kind of segues into what we're going to talk about anyway, some of these bigger questions. But Laura, you mentioned there that this model, 70-20-10 model, is that right? Yeah. Um, could you just explain that a little bit more? Because I'm sometimes a little bit confused about the categories of sure. that model and particularly where nomadic fits in it, actually. And the way that you explained what we do maybe puts us in somewhere else, right? And I wasn't sure where we actually fit in that model. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to just kind of hear a little bit more about the model and where you think we fit in. That's, that's a great question. I hadn't really thought of it before this moment. You know, when you think about I think many, many studies, and Charles Jennings is the person that really kind of leads the pack around the 70-20-10 component. You know, if you look at how people truly learn and how people truly build skill, 70% of how people learn is around having experiences that give them the opportunity to try something new and act and do. And that's really what drives a lot of learning. Um, if you look at the 20, that really is about, you know, 20% of the way we learn is about who you're exposed to and having exposure to the right people, mentors, coaches, colleagues um, that really help you build the right level of knowledge and confidence to go out and try something new. And then the 10% is really 
you know, the education component, by taking a class, um, by, by having some level of formal education, which is a lot of the work that we do in the learning industry is, you know, we, we build, we design, and we deliver great programs, fill in the blank, a leadership class, a class on influence, presentation skills. That's certainly not to say that the 10% isn't important. So we weren't saying that we were eliminating the 10%. We weren't saying that we were losing focus on the 10%. Education still is a core value of how learning gets delivered at City and I think in a lot of other places. But it's how do we enhance kind of the other opportunities that would bring, you know, kind of learning nirvana to the table for people. And when I really think about what Nomadic has done for us, the platform itself, or, you know, the social learning component, there is an element of education, right? People are reading about a potential principle or theory, they're watching videos, but it does lend a nice balance across experience and exposure. So, you know, in the exposure piece, we had learning executives or sponsors from City that were in videos that were expressing kind of their experiences and sharing things that they've learned along the way. Um, we had case studies from external opportunities or external executives and companies talking about how they approach learning differently and what they learned from it. And then really the experience, there were a lot of pieces around um, go out and try something, kind of here's, here's a challenge, go out and try something, or reflect on an experience you've had in the past. What did you learn from it? How could you apply that here? And then there was a lot of exposure to your global colleagues because the social aspect of kind of writing the blog and challenging each other to think differently or try something different certainly came to fruition throughout each of the kind of manuals that we that we launched throughout the process. Yeah. And, and I think that model is, I think it's really an interesting model. And I think it's, 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 it's interesting in that, particularly for the new types of digital learning that are evolving now, and maybe nomadic is one of those new types that it can be hard to actually fit into just one of those categories. And I think that you just explained it well, that actually, in some ways, because I've always kind of put ourselves in, I've always been a little bit wary of that model, because I've always thought, well, actually, but just purely from a kind of like protecting nomadic's name and brand and things i've always thought well we're courses right we're, we're we're education that's really what we do we teach people but i think you're absolutely right that you know there is a huge piece of mentoring and coaching and, and not only from capturing lessons from experts within the organization but also the peer-to-peer -peer coaching within that happens within nomadic where you get within the actual learning you're having people share their own experiences that they're um, that they've had within City and other people are learning from that. So you have that kind of peer-to-peer -peer coaching and then you have the, it's not quite on the job experience, but I think it is almost, we really do try and encourage people to go and immediately put into practice what they are doing in the digital learning and report back on it as well. And I think that more than that, it, through the social learning, you can actually kind of surface challenges people face and as a group, address those challenges directly in the learning, not learn about something that can help you solve that challenge, but actually in the learning environment, solve that challenge very directly as well. So yeah, it's, it's, I'd, I'd never really thought about it before about how I think it's not so easy sometimes to categorize different approaches into that model. And sometimes some approaches can spread across that model. Well, and I think that puts a lot of, I mean, if you think about our profession, right, a lot of us almost feel a little bit uncomfortable or at risk if you really think that my bread and butter has always been in the education component of that model is, you know, where then is my value if you're saying that only 10% of what we do is how people learn. And yet we have such an amazing opportunity. I think we're positioned to drive some of the experience and exposure reflection. How do we encourage people to make those connections? Because even one of the questions in the program asked people to reflect on an experience, the most powerful experience they've had in learning in their lives. Um, and I remember that one person came back and commented on the Boy Scouts and they happened to be a Boy Scout years and years ago and were still very involved. And they talked about how when you're a Boy Scout, you know, everything you do is through experience. You don't you don't read a book on how to light a fire. You go out and learn and try to light a fire and that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. And so it was just mm -hmm. so fascinating that even if even if the program itself didn't give people an experience, although it did, you know, it it had people reflect on it. So um, you know, I think that is the other the other component is while nomadic in and of itself 
for us in the learning profession, it did give people an experience. Now that we're talking about it and I'm thinking about it because it gave people a different way of learning and a view in how people could learn outside of a formal traditional classroom. So I think that in and of itself was an amazing experience that was very enlightening for people. Hmm. Or, or outside of a formal digital learning where you might just be consuming a piece yes. of content, right? And yes. not actually engaging on that piece of content and discussing with your peers how you put it into practice, which both of them in some ways are formal learning, right? In that 10%, but they're, they're very different, you know? And I think, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's very interesting. But it's, it's interesting. One of the things about doing professional development for learning people that's a little bit different than almost anyone else. I mean, one of the tricks we use, like if you're trying to teach someone something or, you know, pull knowledge out of them, you actually put them into the role of being a teacher. This is not a learning person. So if you're not in a learning context and you want, you know, you know, we, we I think this is like a kind of standard thing that like one of the best ways to learn is to teach. For learning people, it's almost the opposite. One of the best ways to get better at teaching is to be a learner sometimes and, and be in a position where you can think critically and reflectively about the learning experience. I know for me, like, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about instructional design from the perspective of doing it. And then sometimes I have these experiences where I am a recipient of it. <laughs> and it's like a, it's very important. It's an important thing to keep in mind because it, it does sort of job, you know, it can really create mind opening moments when you see how other people work through these problems and think about it from a teacher's perspective, or, you know, from a yeah, learner's perspective. Absolutely. So, um, Okay, cool. So I want to actually get, I, I think one of the, one of the big themes that we talk about a lot, Laurie, more broadly, what are some of the pressures and what are some of the changes that are happening inside L&D? I want to start with kind of the relate, the changing relationship between L&D and what might be broadly termed the business. So yeah, so the, so the question I want to ask is kind of what's changing in the relationship between learning development and the business or business problems or more strategic? I think one of the things, Laurie, you, you have taught us and, and City I think is working on a lot is getting L&D closer to business problems, closer to you know more strategic kind of questions because they're real important learning problems kind of that are a part of these business problems and L&D people have an important role to play in that. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of that in general, that phenomenon and, and specifically how it's playing out at somewhere like City where, you know, some of the business problems are incredibly complicated and big and, and, and global. Yeah, I mean, I think for years, whether you're, you know, a learning professional specifically or an HR professional, you know, you hear people talk about wanting that seat at the table, right? Uh, you know, I chose my degree because I wanted a seat at the table with with the business partners. You know, I think what we're seeing evolve and, and this is inside of City and I think outside of City, I hear a lot is we're no longer separate from the business. We are part of the business. And I think that for those people, I have phenomenally smart colleagues that spend a lot of time understanding our business, our products and services as much as they do being an HR or a learning professional. So I think because of that, we view ourselves as being an strong part of kind of how do we solve for business challenges and how do we how do we help drive a culture of innovation? How do we create the right skills within our leadership? so that they're adept at moving our business forward collectively. Um, so I think we just have this amazingly unique opportunity that people are starting to recognize that as they're in this moment of phenomenal rapid change, I think people are painfully aware more now than ever that we need to continue to learn to do things new and differently than we've ever done before. And in order to do that, you need to learn new skills, new knowledge. So I think I think the positioning of learning is viewed quite differently than it has been in the past, just because of the rate of change that people are experiencing these days. Do you think, do you think Laurie, that there's a demand change as well? Do you, do you feel from the business what, what the business demands from learning has shifted as well? Yes, I, you know, um, I think traditionally they looked and would say, um, you know, we need to be better at X organizationally. And this is, I've seen this throughout my entire career, not just at City, but we need mm -hmm. to be better at X. 
can you build me a class on X? And then they would patiently wait for six months while you designed this class and prepared your facilitators and then you went out to market and you got everybody that, that registered for the class and were breaking down the doors to get in there because it was going to solve whatever problem was out there. And now our, our stakeholders, I think, are becoming so smart in terms of how they learn. I think there's a level of self-awareness that I've not seen before, um, simply because there's a bigger integration of technology, digitization, learning opportunities that are available to people in their personal lives, as we talked about. So, you know, these are really educated consumers. And I think we realized that we kind of needed to, to up our game more quickly than they were ready to ask for it. So for example, um, you know, I've had business leaders that are fairly senior that have called me and said, hey, I'm taking a MOOC, um, a massive open online course. I'm taking a MOOC hmm. in my personal life because I was curious about something that, you know, some big institution or, or university is offering. So I'm taking this MOOC. When, is, when are we gonna do that here? When will I be able to be able to take a MOOC at work and that was so illustrative that our consumers are way smarter than they've ever been before and we need to get ahead of that curve so i think in that respect i think people are are learning more day in and day out in everything they do personally and they then realize that that kind of bleeds into their professional life if that makes sense no completely that's really interesting i've never yeah i've never really thought about it like that 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 People are just more exposed to learning than ever before, and they they experience it in their lives more than ever before, especially digital learning, right? And now they want that in there. And it, and it, I, I guess ten years ago, you would very rarely come across digital learning outside of your professional world. You wouldn't go and find it yourselves. And now, I think I would imagine a lot of people are kind of having digital learning experiences um, before that, or, or different to the experiences that they're having within their within their organization as well. And that's probably driving some change within organizations. I've already seen that from the content side. You know, we, of, we often talk about how people are much more exposed now to great video content or all kinds of great content. And learning has to step up, step up and make content that's as good as that. But I hadn't thought about the overall kind of learning experience as well, how they're also exposed to just more learning experiences, more digital learning experiences, how that might drive demand in the organization as well. Well, and it's interesting because on the we experience, you know, kind of the flip side simultaneously, which sometimes can feel a bit schizophrenic during, you know, any given day is it, I, I was at a presentation that Deloitte had done some research and, and shared that people are adapting more quickly to new technologies in their personal lives than they are in their professional lives. And this is the first time in history that our our ability and adaptability in our personal life is is outpacing that in our professional life. So when I think about that, and then I still have some people that will come and say, okay, well, we need to, to develop X skill or X knowledge. Should we be doing a class? And so while we have many, many people that are really, really advanced consumers and demanding things that you know are kind of on the cutting edge, at the same time, we're still fighting a very healthy tension about helping people understand that not everything needs or warrants a class. There are other unique ways that you might engage in learning, but we need to prove to them what that means and what that looks like versus just saying to them, mm. do it differently. Right. Yeah. And sorry, Matt, just one more point on this as well is I think it's interesting that the other side to that as well is that some of those new things that people might be exposed for it turns out they may not work very well. Like the MOOC phenomenon, the 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 at least in at least in outside the enterprise, I don't actually know too much about it with inside the inside the enterprise, but certainly outside the enterprise, they had to kind of radically change the way they were doing learning because the dropout rates were so high, people really weren't learning very much. And you see people like Coursera kind of change how they do the MOOCs and make them actually more a smaller more private learning experience and not these massively open things so it's interesting that you might also be getting people coming and they could like you said they could be very senior saying when are we going to do this but that new approach hasn't really shaken out yet and we really don't know where that's going and you might dive into something that doesn't doesn't actually end up working very well as well 
I think we, we as the learning professional kind of need to recognize when it's time to be opportunistic, that when that question comes in, you're right, Tim, it's that in and of itself may not be the right thing, but how do we use that as an opportunity to influence kind of an expansion of perspective where, where it would benefit all of our work? Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was gonna, I'm gonna just shift a little bit and get a little bit more, I don't know, tactical, practical or something. I wanna ask, there's a few, th- like kind of big skill areas that we hear about a lot in terms of things that this is not really just for L&D people, like things like being more agile or using design thinking or being more collaborative. But I was going to ask you, Lori, like I want to talk about kind of agility and speed first, because I think one of the things, one of the biggest things that's changing at City, and I think you just kind of, you sort of hinted at this, like there used to be like an expectation it was okay for an extremely long lead time to build a course. And it feels like these days, at least our experience at City and with you, is that like things are moving a lot quicker, and there's an expectation that you're going to kind of get stuff out the door and pilot it, and you know maybe you're not going to huge audiences right away, but you definitely are kind of building and iterating. So in your new role, I mean that feels like pretty important. Are you? How are you kind of managing that expectation around speed and agility, both with your stakeholders and you know internal folks who are who are asking for things, and also your own team and the and the folks you're working with. And and how how is it going? Yeah, first I'm learning to take deep breaths, and then <laughs> and then and then I'm 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 learning through experience. Quite honestly, um, this is a new role for me, but I've learned a lot from our process together, collectively designing what we've done. I think you know the the process that we went through, where we kind of designed one module, if you will, got feedback while we were seeking feedback, and people were. Exp- kind of experiencing the content and giving the document and their feedback, we would then go design the next field manual and then module. And then they would go out and give feedback and we'd keep going and then we'd we'd incorporate the feedback. And so I think, you know, that was a really illustrative and enlightening experience for me personally. And I think if I look at the the broader organization, you know, we're building up our own internal capabilities around, you know, um, to throw out some terms like agile scrum teams you know how do we how do we really implement this agile process that i think started with technology organizations but surely is making its way to us is how do we make sure that we're constantly iterating we're testing so instead of building an entire program that might be you know a two-day program it might take six to 12 months to fully design and implement something like that. Instead, we're doing it potentially, you know, one module at a time. Let's go out, let's let's test, let's pilot, let's iterate, then let's add on to it. And so I think I think going forward, we're going to see a lot more rapid kind of um, agility in that perspective that people do not have the patience or the appetite to wait month after month after month for something that would be perfect. You have to be comfortable kind of going out to market with it 80% good enough, and then know that the 20% you're gonna add in as feedback going forward. And that's that's a comfort zone I think some people have to build. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I guess what's, has been quite important for us in our work with you at City is you know looking at looking honestly at the data and feedback not just data about you know you know there's the committee that's giving us feed, direct feedback on the content but then also looking at data around what's working and we've had things at City that didn't work as well as this that were it was pretty obvious you know like the the, the learning transformation challenge was pretty clear that it was working pretty much right away <laughs> but you do have to get comfortable kind of looking quickly and make being able to make changes based on that that data and making sure that you, you know, see it coming in. And I mean, I think I, I how do you, l- let me talk about data actually for a little bit, because I think, you know, you you do not come and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't come out of like a very technical background. You you came out of like, you know, a facility, you were a facilitator, you, you, you came out of a more traditional L&D background. I feel like you've also but you've become, at least in my experience, very adept at the use and, and kind of interpretation and telling stories with data. How are you feeling about the, the world of data and how is that how is that affecting that kind of general agile and iterative approach that you just described? I think some days it's fake it until you believe it, to be quite honest with you. I think, you know, for a lot of us that have been, you know, in this career path for a long time, numbers are not necessarily something I'm phenomenally comfortable with. Um, and and 
over time, it's been challenging, I think, in, in the past to really pull the right information because so much information is dispersed. And how do you make sure that you're pulling it together to tell a story that really informs something important? And that's when you have to use it and when you have to dust it off and figure it out. So I think for us, it's a balance of, let's look at all of the different data components pull them together and also then layer over that the qualitative feedback that you're hearing from participants because data is only a piece. The numbers only tell a limited part of the story, but the broader conversation and pulling themes and pulling trends and understanding what's working, what's not, kind of that, that comes together to create the right picture. So I think for me, thank you for that compliment. I think I've gotten better over time but I still feel like I have a long way to go. I just am smart enough to rely on partners that are really good at it and they could teach me a lot. Is that um, is that a skill you look for a lot more when, when you're hiring people for the L&D department? You, you want people who are, would you ever look for someone who's like actually a data scientist or has a true data analyst background or, or would that is that still kind of a ways off you think? I, I think that we're starting to see it more and more. So, you know, I, in the design space, would I necessarily hire a data analyst? I Probably not. Um, but we're in a large enough organization that we kind of work very collaboratively collaboratively with other teams in city learning. And so we are definitely looking at how do we make the most of metrics and how do we how do we take data and really, again, inform the right decisions. So I do see more and more depending on the role, but more and more there are roles in learning that really are about analytics. And I, I guess a follow-up to that, you know, for, for the actual, for the for the design side that you are most, most focused on, what are some of the capabilities that have changed there? Are you still, is it still basically the same kind of profile of person you're looking for for that kind of job? Or, or are there particular capabilities that have radically changed as learning itself has changed and as the demands of learning within organizations has changed? I think there have been some fundamental shifts in terms of what we look for and who we look for. Um, if I think about kind of the profile, I don't think that we're necessarily saying the profile of yesterday is wrong. Traditional or, you know, kind of your, um, what's known as instructional design, formal design of instructor-led, virtual instructor-led, even in many cases, e-learning programs, that's still really relevant and really important, right? So for me, I almost look at that as being the minimum ticket to the dance. You have to have a foundation in doing instructional design from that perspective to really kind of meet the needs of an organization where we are today. And at the same time, I want people who are exhibiting a significant level of curiosity to seek out and understand and test how do we deliver learning in different ways, right? So again, it's not about throwing out the education component of the work we do. That's still phenomenally important. So we need people to be able to build that. And at the same time, if we're building the right well-rounded learning opportunity, I need people that are ready, willing, and able to break the box and break out of the mold and have a little fun, quite honestly, and do things that we've never done before. So for example, um, how can we use a hackathon format for a learning program, or at least in designing a learning program? Um, how do we think about, if you think back to high school, when you were in a science lab, that was very experiential. You kind of were given a hypothesis, maybe you were given some theory behind it, but then you went and did something with your hands physically to prove whether or not that hypothesis was true. How do we create that in a safe environment to start them off on a journey? And so I think, you know, it's that balance of, you have to straddle the fence of having the background that we look for in instructional and being willing to break the mold and do things that quite honestly, we may not even know what's on the radar for tomorrow. I want the person that's willing to go seek that out and, and kind of figure it out for themselves and have fun in doing it. Hmm. I think that's really interesting. I, I love your point there about, you know, it's the basic ticket to the to the party, the instructional design, because it's something that something Matt and I have like often complained about when we see new startups in the space and you see new people doing learning. And I think that their approaches are often very interesting and their their ideas behind it are very interesting, but they appear to completely throw instructional design out the window, that it's a skill that is not required at all. And I completely agree with you that it's still the foundational skill under that, but you have to then 
look at new ways that you can apply that given the technologies that we have, given the ways that we can create content now, given different approaches to learning. So I, I think that's great that, that, that you still view instructional design as kind of the, the, the fundamental skill, because I think it's, it's starting to sometimes, to, to me, get overlooked and forgotten about, but I still think it's, uh, I think it's incredibly important. I do think learning is underestimated in terms of the expertise that we have. I mean, I get resumes randomly, you know, on a fairly regular basis, some of which have zero learning experience whatsoever. And they've either been a project manager or a communications expert, and they shoot me the resume saying, hey, I'm sure I could be great in learning. And then on the flip side, I will have people that have only designed in-person delivery and they'll say, oh, you know, I'd like to get involved in more innovative work. And, and so it's interesting about, you know, I think we we people underestimate the level of expertise that I think we as learning professionals bring to the table. Indeed. Um, I wanted to there's a theme. We, we have a couple themes that we talk about a lot, Laurie, and I kind of want to get your perspective on this one. One of the a phenomenon that we have discovered, and this is not true with City, and you guys are. I don't want to say the exception to the rule, but are different in this case, which is we're dealing with more and more what we call like shadow L&D departments. So this mm. is L&D professionals who are working not not in a traditional L&D organization. And I had a conversation with one this morning who uh, she's actually is a learning person. She came wasn't in L&D. She now reports to the CMO of one of the largest media organizations in the world because the responsibility for something called like culture and employee engagement or something like that has now gone to the CMO. And really it's actually, but it's sort of actually a learning function. And she called us because she's like wanting to think about it from a learning perspective. City is different though, because I think you guys have had, you know, two CLOs in a row who at least, and I don't know before that, but who have, who were really proactive and kind of thinking differently about the role of L&D inside the organization and making sure that like L&D was seen as a progressive and innovative force inside the organization. Other other L&D groups though are struggling with that and you've seen and the and the result is you see stuff like this conversation I had this morning where things that traditionally would have fallen in the L&D bucket are actually moving towards somewhere else like in this case the CMO because there's like such an it's a it's a mission critical that they engage their employees better that like this and it happened today and it moved faster and so on is that something that you're have you seen that and how like are there lessons that you think you could kind of share from city's perspective in in handling that differently that might be relevant to other l d groups that are kind of struggling with with that yeah i don't i don't know if this is necessarily you know city's perspective we do see you know teams that may pop up and say, hey, we want to focus on X and and they'll really kind of put somebody in a position to do that. I think that happens when part of an organization doesn't feel that their specific needs are being met. So I think, you know, we have to work really, really hard to prove our value every single day, not at City necessarily, but as learning professionals. You know, it's something that can, you know, to my point earlier about how our expertise is undervalued, we have to prove that we have earned that seat at the table. And that happens through understanding whatever your business is, understanding your stakeholder needs, understanding their pain points, what keeps them up today and what's going to keep them up tomorrow. And I think it's about having ongoing conversations about how can you help alleviate some of those pain points. And so I think if you if you do that on a regular basis, hopefully that will minimize some of the shadow opportunities because people will feel heard and they'll feel feel that you're there to help meet their needs and overcome their challenges. I think when that doesn't happen is when those shadow organizations will often pop up because people feel like, well, if I'm not going to get my needs met from, you know, X team, I'm going to go create it myself because then I can control it and then they have to listen. This team has to listen to me. So I think, you know, part of the question is, are you proving that worth? Are you really making sure that every single day you're reminding your business partners that the work you do matters and the work they do matters to you and that one is not kind of in conflict with the other? But at the end of the day, quite honestly, you know, certain learning organizations we included have limitations. And there are sometimes that you can even do that to the best of your ability. And if part of a business still has a distinct need that you haven't been able to prioritize, if they have the wherewithal and the funding, then 
they're and they feel the need to do it, then that will happen as well. So I think there are certain things that we can control in terms of how we position ourselves. And then there are other times where you know, you're just you don't have the capacity to support a certain unique need and they have to go out and do what they need to do. Indeed. That was very well put. Yeah, that pretty much summed it up. Okay. So the other question I wanted to ask you, I mean you hinted at this earlier. So you know, at City is a very, very large place, like 210,000 employees. You have a thousand learning professionals, you know, you're de- and you're dealing with, I don't know how many countries, 100, you know, almost 200 yeah. countries probably. Like something just in, like an incredible level of complexity. How, what are the what are the kind of advantages and disadvantages of that from your perspective? I mean, because there's some great things probably that, that you can do because of that, because of the resources available and because of the just sort of the platform for experimentation. But I'm sure that there's a lot of challenge as well. Like, how do you kind of balance that that tension between the opportunities and the more difficult aspects of, the, of that size and complexity that you guys have to manage? Yeah, I mean, the opportunities are, you know, kind of boundless. We've we've been in business. We have an over 200 year history. We're in almost 100 countries. Um, so I think if you think about the global reach and the scale and impact that we can have around the world, I feel that it's a phenomenal opportunity to be a part of that. So I pay a lot of attention to the great work that's happening around the world where we're making a difference. So not just in learning, but I really feel a part of kind of the impact we have in our communities, the impact we have with our customers. So I think from that perspective, it's phenomenally exciting that I have a line of sight into amazing work that are happening in geographies all around the world. And what a better way to come into work every day. So I think that that part of it's exciting. I get to learn from different cultures. I get to learn from different people. I get a different appreciation of how what I might think will work in New York, um, which to our you know disbelief is not the center of the universe most days, you know I get to see what happens outside of New York, and I get to see what reality looks like and how what we think might work does it or does it not, and how do we need to change and adapt and learn through that. I think that is kind of the similar challenge. You turn that on its head and think, wow, how do we get? the right message, the right information? How do we make the right connections so that we're not just operating out of one kind of central hub, but how do we make sure that the work we're doing is meaningful for the different cultures, for the different business, for the different areas around the world? And I think that's a challenge that that we face every single day. And for me, you know, the thing that that closes the gap as much as possible is having a really strong network and having really generous colleagues that are unbelievably collaborative that that close that gap as much as you can, if that makes any sense. The scale of City always actually blows my mind. I remember a little while ago for the HR Transformation Challenge, I did an interview with Matt, you probably remember her name because you edited the video. She led the recruitment. Cyrita Brown. Yeah. Yeah. And she was talking about how many people City recruits annually. I think it was, was it 30,000? It was, it was something like that. And I just couldn't, it it was almost beyond, you know, I can't understand how you even go about that challenge of recruiting that many people annually. You know, we have trouble recruiting one or two people. (laughs) So (laughs) recruiting 30,000 people. And I think it's the same for learning. It's like, how do you even, it's, I think it's just an important thing for us as your, you know, as your partner and your vendor to bear in mind the challenges, you know, we always think often we're kind of just focused on the learning itself. And we're focused on, I guess we're focused on scale to a degree, but I never really think about the scale at that level. You know, what what would it look like if we had to do a nomadic program for two hundred thousand city employees? I, it's a, it's just an interesting thought exercise to you know have that in your mind of like the actual scale of people at scale that you have to deliver to at, at city. It's a, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had this conversation with a different client recently who was also in the hundreds of thousands, and we were talking about like what it would what it would mean to have an enterprise license. And I was like, well, by enterprise license, do you mean that you're actually going to put <laughs> that many people in? Because like, I don't think we can handle that. <laughs> like, I mean, you're talking, this is like 400,000 people. And I was like, I, you know, all at the same time. I mean, the technology can handle it. But like, 
I don't know. It just it was a it's a it's a daunting uh, it's a daunting thing. But anyway, you you manage it with great grace at City, and I think we've all I've never I mean everyone who I've ever run into, and this is an amazing thing about the culture of the L and D group at City. You know, just incredibly talented, and like you said, th there's a spirit of collaboration in inside City that I. I just find to be amazing. No matter who you're talking to or where they are, there's a there is a kind of ethos of professionalism, but also just real talent, and and that's that's pretty amazing. So, however, Cyrita is doing, however they're doing it, however those many tens of thousands are coming in, they're doing a good job of finding really talented and, and good people, at least from our window. Yeah, I mean it's you know it's amazing. It's never boring. No two days, no two minutes are ever the same. Um, and I think when we talk to new employees or people that haven't been here very long and you say, you know, kind of what are your initial impressions or what surprises you the most, they always answer how collegial and collaborative an environment it is. And I think that's surprising for such a large organization, but it's certainly something that makes me most proud and most excited to come to work every day. Okay. So last, last question, Laurie, I want to think about kind of, so, you know, you, you've done, you did this really powerful, impactful project for the learning groups. I know that that is now expanding more broadly into HR. Where do you see over the next few years, where do you see that moving, the kind of professional development opportunities and the learning opportunities for L&D folks and, and maybe for the broader HR community as well at City? What because obviously the world is continuing to change as it as it is wont to do, um, so we're going to have to do something. Like where 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 do you go? Where do you see it going from here? I think I see appetite increasing, and it's almost like the sleeping giant, you know, waking up, if you will. Because I work with colleagues who are unbelievably generous to support the stakeholders that that they do. So if you sit in HR, if you sit in learning or anywhere in HR, you know, we all support the different stakeholders around the various products and business lines that we have. And people work tirelessly to make sure that those people have development and those people are learning and growing and that they have the skills needed for the future of work. And yet, you know, kind of shoemaker's children, if you will, we often don't take the time to do for ourselves. And, and it was kind of a cycle of, we don't take the time, so there's not a lot of opportunity, there's not a lot of opportunity, so we don't take the time. Well, now the opportunities are starting to abound uh, because we have to, we just, you know, gone are the days where our profession is fairly static in terms of what we do and how we do it. Things are changing for our business partners phenomenally rapidly, but also for us, the way in which we connect the humans around the place, the way in which we manage through technology and, and really bring people together in that way is changing. And we need to make sure that we're staying on top of those skills. So I think people are starting to just build a much bigger level of curiosity and that's opening up a lot more opportunity for us from a development perspective. So I, I see this as just the beginning. Hmm. Well, I think we can leave it there, Tim. Any, any final thoughts, final questions? Uh, no, I think that's a great place to leave it. Yeah. Well, Lori, thank you so very much for coming to talk to us. And uh, you were so good. We're probably going to beg you to come do it again sometime <laughs> well thanks for the chance to geek out with my learning peeps it's always a lot of yes, fun indeed. Yeah. this is the place to come geek out yeah with your learning peeps for sure yeah <laughs> and yeah whoever we, we've always say like whoever makes it to the end of this podcast you must be a learning geek too so if you're here <laughs> if you've made it all the way yeah. welcome to the learning geek club <laughs> And thank you. All right. Uh, so that's it for this episode of The Learning Conversation. Remember, you can check us out at nomadiclearning.com. Check out our blog and Twitter at nomadiclearn. And we're on LinkedIn. We will be back with an episode sometime. I'm going to stop saying every week because we never do it every week. It's rare that we're hitting every two weeks, but it's going to happen again pretty soon. Our marketing people get really mad at us when we don't record one, right, Tim? So uh, it will happen soon. Definitely. Thanks, Lori. All right. Thanks, Bye, Lori. everybody.